Today, we're joined by Michael Crossland. I could do a 10 minute intro on this one about the million and one things that Michael's done over the course since he's been born up until now. But to be honest, Michael, I, I think it's best to let you speak and give us a bit of background from when you were born, a um, bit of background in terms of your professional career, your playing career and everything in between up until now. Thanks, boys. Well, I appreciate you inviting me on. And uh, it's always fun to be able to get on this platform from my own home in my studio to be able to uh, hopefully serve and add some value to different parts of people's lives uh, around the world. But I, uh, I guess if I start from now, I, I, I've been very lucky to travel the world as an inspirational speaker. I've been doing that about 10 years now. I've been lucky enough to share the stage with the Dalai Lama and Richard Branson. I was meant to be the closing speaker on Tony Robbins' tour in 2020, but obviously that uh, took a little spiral when that horrible word that starts with C and ends in Ovid um, took <laughs> over the world. But, um, mate, I, I've, I've, I've been very fortunate to lead a, a very privileged, very blessed life, and I think that it's not the adversities that I've faced that have defined me, it's about how I've dealt with my adversities that have allowed me to live a really remarkable life. And I think that we all have a story, right? You guys and everybody listening, we all have our own challenges. We all have our own battles. And <clears throat> the one thing that I've learned throughout my journey is that <clears throat> our pain and suffering is not so different. What is so different is our solutions. It's how we deal with that pain and heartache. It's how we mentally prepare ourselves to go through the darkness to embrace the coolness of the shadows to then finally come out the other side and and truly enjoy the warmth of the sunshine that ultimately determines you know from the day you were born to the day you die what that dash represents and for me that dash has been a um you know as as you boys know has been a has been a wild ride i i was diagnosed with an incurable cancer when i was 11 months old I, uh, I started chemotherapy on my first birthday. My chemo cycle was nine days on, uh, three days off for nearly two and a half years. They couldn't believe I was still alive. Then we discovered uh, through many, many scans that the tumor had taken over half of my body. The treatment was no longer doing the job. I had to go into surgery. Unfortunately, six hours later, the doctors came out, said that they didn't get it all. There was nothing they could do. Uh, so basically, I was going to be sent home to die. But the next day, there was an American doctor. He was trialing an experimental drug on 25 patients around the world. Uh, we all had to be uh, terminally ill. They had 24 candidates, and they asked me whether I wanted to be number 25. And well, they asked my family, obviously, my mum, and and she uh, she obviously said yes. We we had to sign a waiver. We had uh, had no idea what the side effects would be. They'd never trialed it on humans before, only on animals, um, and the side effects were were pretty heavy. Um, some would say horrific. We we started the drug at 9 a.m. on Tuesday morning. Within one day, we were all transferred from the oncology ward to the burns unit. The after effects of this drug had uh, burnt us uh, from head to toe. And what they would do to prevent our brains from frying and, and from us dying, they would wrap us up in bandages and lie us in baths full of ice uh, for as long as we could possibly handle it. Um, but a long story short, Unfortunately, 24 out of the 25 of us that were on that trial drug passed away uh, within a 90-day period. And, uh, you know, I say to people around the world that I'm one of the lucky ones, but I never say I'm one of the lucky ones because I'm still alive. I, I say I'm one of the lucky ones because I wasn't my mum. 
You know, I, I, mm. All I had to do was lie in bed and feel the pain. My mum had to make a choice to inject a drug into a child that's killed everybody that uh, has ever taken it. And, um, you know, she, she had to go to death counselling once a week to deal with what was going to happen to a little boy. So her courage and her optimism and her resilience is something that continues to inspire me today. And I, I finally got out of hospital. Um, you know, it's funny, and I'm sure you've all been in hospital, you boys, I'm sure. Um, mm. they, they, take, they take the parent or the partner outside the curtains to give them the bad news, right? And I, every hospital I've ever been to, the curtains aren't soundproof. So I don't know, I don't know why they take them outside, <laughs> but they do, right? They take them outside and, and they said to my mum, your son, he's never going to go to school. He'll never play sport. He'll be a housebound baby. And if he reaches his teenage years, it'll be a miracle. My mum come through the curtains and um, and I said to her, I'm making out that I didn't hear what the doctor said. I said, what did the doctor say? And and she said with a tear in her eye, she said, um, the doctors told me that everything was going to be okay. And I think that that day was the day that my mum began to carry the burden of losing her son so that I could lead I could lead somewhat of a normal life and um, you know I, I step out of my own shoes sometimes and I I will walk a day or two in her shoes and um, I certainly was the lucky one because I didn't have to make those decisions and um, you know I've I've moved on to lead a, a really wonderful life. I, I obviously uh, reached my teenage years. I'm, I'm 37 years young now. Um, they told me I'd never go to school. I, I graduated high school and um, I got a full ride scholarship um, to Concordia University in Austin, Texas. They told me I'd never play sport. And at the age of uh, 12, I made the New South Wales team um, playing baseball, the game that I loved. Um, Yes, there was a lot of challenges along the way. I had my first heart attack when I was 12. Um, and they said I'd never play sport again. But I realized at a very young age that no one's ever going to tell you what you can do. They'll only ever tell you what you can't. And it's your choice whether you choose to listen. And I chose to believe in myself. I chose to realize that um, my destiny is ultimately up to the decisions that I make. And the decisions that I make are ultimately based on the mindset that I can get myself into. So I needed to really believe in myself and surround myself with people that believed in me. And within uh, two years, at the age of 14, I made the, uh, the Australian uh, under 16 Expos team. We flew to America. I got a chance to play over there when I was uh, 14, 15, 16, 17. And when I was 17, I signed that scholarship to play baseball over there. And, you know, biggest crowd we ever played in front of here was about 20 people. And that was the mums and dads of the team we were playing against. And the first game I played over there was in a 20,000 seat stadium, you know. So it was uh, it was a dream come true. But but as you all know, uh, our, our dreams um, and our world can change in a heartbeat. One bad phone call, one bad decision, one bad choice. And uh, our world can, can get turned upside down. And I never told my coach that I was sick because... My first dream as a little boy was I just wanted to be normal like everybody else. And uh, I slid into a base in Arizona. I woke up three days later. My heart couldn't cope. My health had deteriorated and I never played baseball in America again. I came back to Australia, did a TV show on Australian stories. I, I, got, into, uh, I got into banking. Um, that's time for another conversation, maybe over a, uh, a stiff uh, 
cup of tea. Um, but uh, <laughs> I got into banking and I uh, worked my way up into the corporate ladder very, very quickly. Within four years, I was the youngest national sales development manager for one of the largest companies in the world, 600 staff, 120 banks. But I chased the materialistic possessions that I thought success was going to bring me. And um, I think I chased the perception of what I thought success was. And it's interesting um, with the field that you guys work in and, and many of the listeners are in, I wanted to live in the multi-million dollar house. I wanted to drive the $100,000 sports car. I wanted, I wanted to wear the fancy watches and, and create this persona of, of wealth and success. And, uh, you know, I, I borrowed more money than I, than I could so I could create the perception that I was bigger and more successful than I really was. And it took me to hit rock bottom in between 2008, 2010 was, was really tough. You know, my mom and dad, they separated. I invested the very small amount of money that my mom got from the settlement um, into shares. And that was about six, seven weeks before the GFC hit. I lost all of my mom's money. Uh, I had so much debt in Sydney, I couldn't take care of her. Uh, she lived up here in my hometown of Coffs Harbour. And, um, you know, I, putting her in a caravan park was, uh, was a very low point for me. You know, the one woman that sacrificed so much of her life was the one woman I couldn't take care of. And off the back of that, as we all know, and that's why I think, you know, mental health days are so important for us to just say, hey, hey, boss, hey, coach, I, I need time out and uh, I need to get my head right. And I didn't get my head right. I just kept chasing and chasing and chasing and chasing and until, you know, I remember one day I was, and I'm sure you guys have uh, experienced this, maybe not to the, the, the dumbness of how I felt, but I'm sure we've been there. Is I was driving my fancy sports car, I had the roof off, music blaring. I drove past these two backpackers with their life possessions on their back and <clears throat> one hand on the wheel, you know, just thinking I was amazing. And I remember they looked at me, it was like slow motion. They looked at me and I thought to myself, they'll look at me going, wow, he is successful. And I realize now they'll probably look at me going, wow, he is a wanker. Because boy, <laughs> that, that's exactly what I was, you know? And I thought I was better than other people because I drove a nice car and lived in a nice house that the bank owned. And, you know, as I said, it took me to hit rock bottom, 2010, got bacterial meningitis, got fluid on the brain, had Bell's palsy down the right-hand side of my body, had to learn to walk again and talk again. And I uh, just, I pretty much gave up. I, I didn't want to fight anymore. I'd, I'd pray to God every night that I wouldn't wake up. And um, he didn't listen. He, uh, he kept poking me every morning to get my butt up. And I realized I just need to master a couple of things. I need to master what success was. I need to master what giving was. And now I understand both of them. Success is about getting out of bed, knowing in your heart that you can make a difference in somebody else's life. And the second thing was this whole giving notion. And now I, I, I think I nail it. And that is that we must give without remembering and receive without forgetting. And that's when I committed my life uh, to making a global impact. Uh, I walked away from the corporate world. I had a dream and a goal to share my story and try and inspire others. But at the same time, um, live into my legacy, not just leave a legacy. And as you know, that's when I decided to go to Haiti. Uh, earthquake hit there in 2010, killed 316,000 people, left millions of people homeless. I built a school for 270 students now. Um, on the way back, I walked past a village. There was uh, these kids that just had no clothes on and just rags and not eating food and malnourished and it uh, broke me. And uh, it, was a, it was a tiny little orphanage and 
um, me and some buddies, we decided to take it over and uh, we rebuilt it. And now we have 44 beautiful kids that we get a chance to look after 365 days a year. They all get three meals a day. They get an education. And, um, you know, I reflect on all the things that I've been able to accomplish in my life and to know that I've been able to make a difference in somebody else's life who I thought would never be able to return the favor was, was such a, a beautiful moment for me. And I say, I thought they'd never be able to return the favor, but you know, these, these kids have taught me far more than I could ever teach them. They've given me far more than I could ever give them. And um, I am eternally grateful for what they have done in my heart to become a better man than what I've done to them physically. And, um, you know, we, we moved through that and, and um, you know, since then I, I've, uh, I've bought my mom a new house, which was, which was incredible in 2016. Unfortunately, I was diagnosed again in 2016 with four more tumors of my throat. Uh, that was tough. I was 32 and, um, you know, I had to, had to do a video message saying goodbye to my family and I prepared my own funeral. And um, it's amazing when you get given an end date, how your perspective on life changes. You know, I challenge every one of you that are listening today. I, I challenge you to just text somebody and say, hey, I care about you. I love you. Thanks for being a great friend. I guarantee I know what they'll write back. They will write back. Uh, they'll write back two words and a question mark. They'll write back what's wrong. <laughs> they will think. Uh, they will think that you're dying. You've lost your job or you're drunk because we, because we don't tell people what they mean to us until it's too late. And um, I had surgery. They removed three out of the four tumors. Unfortunately, the fourth tumor is not in a good place. Um, but I've realized that the quality of one's life is is not dictated nor determined by the amount of days we live on this earth. It's about what we fit into those days. And uh, I assure you I'm doing my best to pack as much in as I possibly can. You know, 2019, I was on 186 flights. I spoke in 22 countries around the world and you know, I got to achieve some really cool things. But without a doubt, the greatest accomplishments in my life occurred in late 2017 and earlier this year. Um, on the, uh, I think it was middle of July, 2017, we announced to the world that we were gonna have a baby. Um, after being told we'd never be able to have kids, I told my wife, the more we practice, the more chance we've got of making it happen, right? <laughs> but that didn't go down very well. But um, through years of IVF and lots of challenges along the way, we, uh, we, finally, we finally managed to, to get one um, through. And uh, we were due to have a baby at the end of February, 2018, but on the 12th of December, um, my wife was 29 weeks pregnant. Um, she went into labor and gave birth to a um, beautiful little boy who was very, very unwell, who weighed two pound and had a horrible illness called sepsis. And, uh, you know, reality check, I, uh, I watched a man resuscitate my little boy. And I remember saying, I remember saying out loud, you know, take, take my house, take my car, take my career, take everything that I've ever been able to create and obtain, but please don't take my little boy. And I challenge everybody listening, you know, why, why wait until you in the, are in the depth of the greatest darkness you've experienced? 
before you begin to take stock on the little things that you take for granted so often. Uh, he battled and um, now he's a healthy four-year-old little boy named Lachlan James. And um, my sunshine entered the world on the uh, 21st of January this year. Um, my wife gave birth to a beautiful, healthy, gorgeous little girl named Summer Grace. So, um, you know, it's been a it's been a wild ride, and you know, I, I've had a chance to to walk a few days in my mum's shoes, and um, you know, I'm I'm so grateful that I was lying in the bed and not standing next to it. And I think that through great adversity and great darkness, that's our discovery moment. We we do not discover how unfair our life is, but rather we begin to discover how powerful we have been created. And I'm sure that you guys can resonate to that and everybody listening, you know, through the hard days, through the tough days, the character building days, I believe that is when we learn and we grow so much. And I, I love that saying, if we do what is easy, then our life will be hard. But if we do what is hard, then our life will be easy. And, uh, you know, I, I think I've done the hard yards and now I'm very, very blessed to live in a beautiful home with a gorgeous family. And, um, you know, I'm, I've enjoyed my time at home uh, in isolation for an extended period of time. But boy, oh boy, am I ready to get in front of a live audience and uh, actually wear pants. You know, it's going to be cool to actually <laughs> wear pants and shoes to an event rather than just put a nice shirt on and, and sit in front of a camera. So, um I guess that rather than doing the, the long 10 minute intro, there's my 10 minute intro of, uh, of my journey so far. Mate, that is one heck of a story. That was the biggest roller coaster I've ever felt I've been on in my life. That was crazy. If anyone listening to this denies that they didn't have a tear in their eye, it's complete lying. <laughs> that, my. Michael, you have lived an absolute insane life. You've seen the depths of depression. You've seen the heights of exhilaration multiple times over, not just once, but literally multiple times over from the time you've been born, from the time you were born up until now. What would you say would be, by personal life, but in terms of professional life, what, what would you say some of the biggest hits or biggest yeah. calls that you've ever seen in your professional life yeah obviously if you look at it personally it's you know having kids and being able to you know provide for my family and and you know buy my mum a home and all those sort of things is wonderful but professionally you know, it's been it's been a, quite a few things uh you know to represent my country uh was was a real privilege to be um you know a a, a torchbearer for the commonwealth games was was pretty amazing uh to be able to you know speak in front of 20,000 people at the MGM Grand in 2019 with the likes of Eric Thomas um, was just, you know, some of these things were amazing to tour with Richard Branson. Um, you know, I, I, it's kind of nice because I, I don't have the, the ego or the arrogance and I don't have the, the famous, you know, connotation to my name. So it's kind of sweet that I can just sliding under the radar and just stay humble and stay grounded and be able to get on stage and, and impact as many people as I can. You know, we, we had a video go viral last year. It's, <clears throat> I think now it's up to like 84 million views. And I remember when it hit a hundred thousand views and I was like, Oh my God, I can't believe a hundred thousand people have watched what I have to say. And then it exploded. And, you know, every now and then it just explodes even more, but 
I think, you know, to, to be able to touch that many people around the world, to, to be able to get told for so long that what are you doing? You don't have a story to tell you, you know, you're not, you're not marketable. I remember I, I reached out to about a hundred different speakers bureaus and they're like, you're not marketable. We don't, you know, most of them, you just never responded, never replied. And then, you know, in 2015, 16, when things really started to explode for me and different TV shows were coming on board. And, you know, I was lucky enough to go on Ridiculousness a couple of times in the States on MTV and done iFish and I've worked on Sunrise and Studio 10 and the Daily Edition and, and all those Fox Sports and all those fun things. But I remember when they said, you know, the only agency that gave me a shot um, and listened to my pitch was the one that said, you're not marketable. And then I think it was two or three years later, I did an event and they were there and they listened. And all of a sudden they were just handing out their business cards to everybody saying, hey, if you want to book him, ring me, ring me, ring me, ring me. <laughs> and so many people say to me, you know, like, why did, like, I ended up signing with them and I'm still signed with them today. But so many people say, why did you sign with them? I'm like, well, they were right. I wasn't marketable then. I wasn't mm. ready then. And I think mm. so often we get, we get frustrated by people telling us what we can't do. So we get angry at them rather than saying, what can I learn from this? And I had to learn from it. I needed to master my skill and master the craft and, and generate a really nice, smooth story that was going to impact people with authenticity and grace, but humility and joy and, and real tangible tools. And at that time when they said, you're not ready, I wasn't ready. And if they put me up on the big stage, I would have failed miserably. So I think from that, you know, and, and same in your industry, you know, if, you, if a deal falls through, if a client falls over, if you've got tie kicks that are annoying, whatever it is that is relative to your industry, rather than taking it as a personal attack, take it as a, an opportunity to learn. You know, I love that saying, we must get comfortable in being uncomfortable. You know, mm. my mindset right now, I'm so sharp in what I do in regards to my exercise routine every day. Like I, I, I listen to that little voice now, but I'm learning to turn the volume mm. down and I love it when it tries to tell me, hey, just take the short route. Don't do the long route. You've got a big day ahead of you. All right, mm. cool. And then you just deliberately take the long route. I do laps out in our pool out the back. And they're like, hey, you know, I've got five, five cubic meters of dirt to shovel this afternoon. And I was on to like my 20th lap. And, and my head was saying, hey, you've got a lot of shoveling to do today. Don't do your 32. Just go to 22. You know, just back off a little bit. Save some energy. Get inside. Have a real nice breakfast. And then you just push through the 22 and you go on 23 and then all of a sudden you're at 32. So it's amazing when you just silence the voices in your head and get comfortable in being uncomfortable, how much we can grow and, and become better versions of ourselves. Sure. Mm. Michael, one point you mentioned in your story, which I find resonates with me quite a lot is the fact that you've had to transition from the the fear base and the uncertainty to more of a, an abundance mindset and something I struggle with, which has happened in my life when my dad passed away when I was seven is you take on this uncertainty and this fear in your life where you tend to move towards success and creating things to fill that gap of uncertainty. Something I want to learn from you is how did you switch internally from where you're comfortable being so uncertain and, you know, materialistic things, you're not striving for that to fill the void. Could you share a little bit about that in your experience, please? 
That's a really great question. I've never, I've actually never been asked that question. So usually you go on these things and you get asked the same <laughs> question over and over again. So that's a really great question. Firstly, I'm sorry to hear of your, of your pain when you were so young, because that ultimately shapes you to the man you are today. But it doesn't necessarily need to shape you in a way that doesn't allow you to be the best you can be. You know, I think there are only two types of people in the world. There are those that use the pain of their past to justify the poor excuses and the poor choices that they make in life. And there are those that use the exact same pain and suffering as the motivation to succeed. You know, and it sounds like, to your point, that that's your angle. You know, you use that as the motivation to succeed, but then you're a little bit unsure about the void, the emptiness of am I just filling that hole with success to make me feel like I am abundantly happy? And, you know, I, I hope that resonates and that's relevant. Yeah, 100%. Hit the nail on the head. <clears throat> so I, I, I think, let me just give you an analogy. I bought a really fancy car when I was in Sydney and I would drive and do laps and laps and laps until I got a park right outside the cafe because I wanted people to see me get out of that really fancy car, right? Now I drive a really, really nice car and I park two blocks back because I don't want people to see the car that I drive. But more importantly, I don't care what people think of me and the car that I drive. So there's a really significant difference between an ego purchase and an abundance mm. purchase. Um, and, and living in an egotistical life and living in an abundant life. And for me, that's where I really had to shift that mindset. And, you know, something that's really helped me is, you know, we need to do the right thing even when nobody's watching, right? And I think I, think I learned that as an athlete, as a kid and living in the States, you know, it's amazing when the coach is watching you always do the amount of push-ups that he asks you to do, but when he's not watching, all of a sudden you back off a little bit. But it's the things that we do when no one's watching that will ultimately determine the height of our success. And I'm sure that you guys agree with that, whether it's in the real estate world, whether it's letterbox drops, phone calls, follow-ups, whatever it is, banking, you know, sports, you know, insurance, whatever it is, it's the stuff that you do when nobody is monitoring you, acknowledging you, that's really going to determine that. And I, I like the analogy about petrol fuel. I, I really like paying for other people's fuel. It makes me feel good. So I'd go to the, um, the petrol station and I would pay for my fuel and I'd say, pick up Bowser 7. And I'd never get the diesel Bowser because they're always like 150 bucks and I don't want to pay <laughs> bucks. So I'd pick up Bowser 7 and, and they would walk in and, and they would pay for the fuel and the person behind the counter would say, oh, no, no, don't. You don't need to pay that guy over there paid. And then they would turn around, look at me and go, oh, thanks so much. And I'd go, no problem. And I had a big smile on my face and I'd drive off. And people listening to that go, yeah, that's quite, that's kind of cool. But, you know, you're doing something with somebody else. That's, that's great. But then I took that a little bit deeper and I realized the only reason why I was paying for that person's fuel was to be thanked. I was getting the dopamine hit because someone was thanking me, not because I was doing something for somebody else. And I love that saying, um, we must, you know, I said it before, we must give without remembering and receive without forgetting. But the other one is, you know, the more you give, the more you shall receive. I think that is so outdated and so wrong. The saying should be, the more you give, expecting nothing in return, the more you shall receive. 
And I think that shifting that language so ever slightly, shifting our actions so ever slightly, will ultimately shift our mindset, which will then give us the ability to focus on what abundance really looks like. And I think abundance does not look like a giant house and a fancy car. Abundance looks like leading a purposeful life that is filled with happiness, peace and comfort. You know, and, and for me, that, that's been a really powerful place for me to spend a, 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 an extended period of time over the last couple of years in. You know, I, I've, I have two beautiful children. Yeah, I, I haven't been on stage for five months. I'm, I'm missing it. But, but I've been able to inject an, an element of value into my child's or children's lives uh, and my wife more than I could ever begin to imagine. So I think to just close out that question, it's really about getting your state of mind into a place that truly understands the reason why we want to live a life filled with abundance and then actually identifying what it is that the abundance is for you. Because if it is materialistic wealth that you create, that you're striving for, that you perceive will be the abundance that will fill the whole, then you may achieve some great materialistic things in your life, but I guarantee you, you will be empty. You know, I've got some really, really wealthy um, associates, um, clients that I coach and very dear friends. And boy, do they have a full bank account and an empty heart. And to be able to try and get the balance right is, uh, is, is you know, is a really powerful thing. And, and I think that my abundance started to really take control when I started to live my life for other people. And I replaced my fear, which is the word you were, you were using in that question. Um, you know, fear, in my opinion, is false evidence appearing real. I replaced my fear of dying and my fear of failure in, mm. with my faith. And yes, I have a faith in God, but whatever the faith may be for you, um, it could be many different religions. It could be just faith that, you know, faith within yourself that you will get through the challenges. You will come out the other side. You will be able to impact other people positively. Um, you know, that, that has been a really big thing. For me, I had to replace my fear of dying with my faith. And now, you know, when my time is up, you know, I, I want to see my kids grow old. You know, I, I want to take my son to his first soccer game. I want to walk my daughter. I want to walk my daughter down the aisle. I've got a greater purpose to live now than just to serve other people. I, I've got a family that I want to serve. And that is a life of abundance. Yeah. It, it really seems clear cut that you found your purpose and it's, it's far above success in, in this professional corporate world. But as you would know, when you're, I know you work with one of the leading agents in the country, as you may be already be aware, this industry is full of egos. All it is on, they want their watches. Everyone drives a BMW or a Mercedes. It's such a materialistic, egotistical industry. Why do you think that is? And what would you tell the viewers that are in that mindset? Because I see 20-year-olds in this industry and they've got these 80 grand loans out driving Mercedes and they're still assistants. 
what would you tell these people that are in that mindset? Because that, to be honest, what I see would be like 95% of the industry. Yeah, it's interesting because, you know, if I have a guy rock up to my house, we, we have a beautiful home where I live. And uh, if I have two real estate agents rock up, one's driving a Camry and one's driving a Mercedes-Benz, and I'm going to think maybe the guy driving the Mercedes-Benz is doing a little bit better than the Camry driver, regardless of his financial background. But it's just the perception that we take. And unfortunately, we are in a world that is very driven by materialistic wealth and possessions. So I respect and understand that element of the why. Uh, what I think is so powerful with the individual that you refer to that I work with closely and many others that are incredibly successful within your organization, within the business um, and the industry is it's okay to have a great car, whether you own it or not. It's okay to live in a really nice house, whether you own it or not. But that doesn't determine or dictate that you are better than somebody else. And I think from a consumer point of view and from a longevity point of view in the industry, your humility will outshine your rims. Mm -hmm. Your gratitude will outshine your bank account. And I think that if you want longevity in an industry that is filled with ego and arrogance, then I think the abundant mindset of humility and grace will serve you beautifully. Powerful. Michael, when you talk, you're talking a lot about mindset in these situations, and I'm quite curious to see in my life, I've experienced points in time where mindset can take, can only take you so far. And what, what can happen is, the external can have that much of an impact where you need more than just mindset to get you through. So I'm curious to understand what routines or activities have you in, developed in your life? So where you're starting to embody and feel these feelings of faith, love, abundance, rather than trying to use it as trying to use the mind as a mindset tool. What are you using outside of the mind and mindset when mindset doesn't work? Interesting question, because our body has limitations, but our mind does not. So I don't think that our mind will take us to a certain point and we will then stop. I, I, so I just want to get clarity around that question. I think that it's really important that we understand that we can, we can achieve some remarkable things based on our mindset. Um, but you're right, you know, I could have, like right now, I could have an incredibly crystal clear mind and vision that I am going to win the PGA, but I suck at golf. <laughs> I love golf. I get asked to play in every charity golf day there is because I can smack a couple down the fairway, one every five or six holes. It's great, but I'm never going to, to do that vision or, or achieve that goal regardless of how powerful my mindset is. So I respect what you were saying there. And I think that's relevant, right? To this conversation. Yeah. So I think that firstly, it's really important that you, you have some sort of skill and, uh, and you, and you work on that skill set to be able to achieve something that you want to achieve in your life. But routine wise for me has been critical to maintain an optimistic outlook through uncertain times. I think, you know, in 2020, uh, in March, when when the world changed, I had 68 events get cancelled overnight. My tour with Tony Robbins got cancelled. 
Uh, my wife lost a job. My mum lost a job. Uh, my mum needed a really uh, big surgery that was going through a private uh, hospital that was going to cost $25,000. And all of my income stopped. Uh, I had you know, a few houses which required me to make repayments on them. Uh, one of my tenants lost their job. They couldn't afford the repayments. Like it was, it was the big storm. And uh, I realized that I needed to get a really crystal clear state of mind. So I go through and I've got an audio book about it. If anybody's interested, jump on my website. Uh, all the money goes to my orphanage. I don't take any money from my audio books or my books. Anything online goes straight to charity. And but, what's um, the website, Michael? <clears throat> website's michaelcrossland.com. Um, so Beautiful. I'm on all the social media sites. So if anybody wants to jump on, get on it. But the three steps that I go through, the, my routine every single day, and it's a non-negotiable routine, <clears throat> is I activate, meditate, and appreciate. So the first thing is I activate, I do some sort of exercise, I get the heart racing. Uh, this morning I went for a run and then did my laps in the pool out back. Uh, that was my activation. Uh, the second one is meditation. You know, I, I'm going to be really like, I'm going to lay it flat on you. I, I thought honestly that in 2018, even up into 2019, I thought the only people that meditated were bong smoking hippies that <laughs> drove, you know, V dub vans, lived in Byron Bay, didn't wear shoes, wore cotton, grew beards, burnt incense like that. That's that is who I thought meditated. And now, you know, I've worked with some of the top CEOs in the country. I've worked with pro athletes in the states, earning thirty million dollars a year. Um, you know, some of the top real estate agents in this country and they all meditate they all understand the power of meditation and you know i love um i love i think it was uh i think it was buddha or dalai lama one of the two and they uh they asked him what do you gain from meditation and he said oh i don't gain anything it's what i lose from meditation that serves me so well i lose fear I lose anxiety, I lose depression, I lose worry, I lose the fear of dying, and I lose the voice. I lose mm. the voice that tells me that I can't. Mm. And I think that for me has been so powerful. You know, we have 80,000 thoughts a day and 70% of them are negative. So we have 56,000 negative thoughts every day that tell us that we can't do something. So if there's a way that we can tap into our mindset and reduce the volume so we don't hear the thoughts, or maybe we get to a point where we reduce the amount of thoughts that we have from 80,000 to 70,000. And even if the percentage still stays where it is, that's a significant reduction in the amount of negative voices and thoughts that we have every single day. And then the last thing is, is um, appreciation, gratitude. You know, every single morning I have a gratitude journal, I have a gratitude text list. So I have nine people that I work with closely. And every single morning I text them the three things that I'm grateful for and they text me their three things that they're grateful for. I think accountability is the key for transformation and consistency is the key for transformation. So I get them every day. You know, they send me their three, I send me their, my three and it's uh, maybe it's just reducing the percentage, you know, 80,000, 70%. Maybe I've dropped it down to 70,000 thoughts a day because I'm slowing my mind down and maybe the 70% is down to 60% or 50%. Now, all of a sudden, my subconscious mind takes over. And on a day-to-day -day basis, my subconscious mind is plucking things out of my day without me even thinking about what I am grateful for. So then tomorrow morning, when I go and send the text, because I do it first thing of the morning um, after I exercise, is that I have this sense of optimism 
and gratitude towards the day before I get into it because I've had an opportunity to stop and reflect on the little things that I'm so grateful for. So everybody listening, I challenge you, buddy up, you boys, buddy up with each other every morning, just for 21 days, do it for 21 days. So it becomes a habit rather than action and uh, see, see how it changes you. Cause I promise you, you will feel a difference emotionally, um, spiritually about the little things that you so often overlook um, mm -hmm. and now begin to register so deeply. What yeah. were the three things you were grateful for this morning, Michael? Just three as an things example. I was, yeah, three things I was grateful for this morning. The first one was my daughter, for the first time, slept from 7 p.m. until 3 a.m. She's teething <laughs> at the moment. She's got six teeth. So uh, so that's been a very, I guess you could say, character building because we are not sleeping at all. So to, to have a good chunk of sleep was amazing. Um, the second one was the sunrise that I had over the pool this morning was unbelievable. You know, it was really special for me. And then thirdly, a, uh, sadly, a friend of mine, he, um, his daughter has just been diagnosed for the second time at the age of five with brain tumor. And I'm just so grateful to be in a position of abundance to uh, we, we have two cars and I'm not going anywhere. I'm at home all the time. So his wife had to go to Newcastle, John Hunter, to start chemotherapy tomorrow um, with his daughter. And he's up here with his three kids by himself, no vehicle. And he's been riding the three kids, one on the back, one on the bar, one on the handlebars, every morning for the last week in the rain. And fortunately enough, some sunshine as well, um, every day to and from school. So I wow. just... I, uh, I gave him our car and, you know, to be in a position to be able to serve others is, is, uh, is, is really cool. Some of these stories you've told today have put things majorly in perspective for me. And I'm sure a lot of other people that will listen to this as well. There are, I know a lot of people that are doing it quite tough right now through Melbourne with their lockdowns, through a bunch of other things that are going on. And obviously some even more hard hitting things from what you've just said that your friend's experiencing. What would you tell people that are going through a really hard time right now and some advice, obviously meditation being a one key factor, what would be some other tools or advice that you could give people going through a tough time? Yeah. So I have, I have a, I have a three-step process that helps me out of darkness. Um, again, it's all online. If you want it, just jump on and grab it. But um, basically I talk about the three steps of pushing through darkness and that's move share and help uh and then the other ones are the three p's that i'll get to but the first one is move so you've got to do something uh you know you asked me before we came on what's what's your routine before you walk out on stage when you're in the green room uh, what do you do i have my 50 50 by five so i do 50 push-ups 50 sit-ups 50 squats 50 dips and 50 star jumps that that's my five i i make sure that i do that religiously before i came on today I did that uh, because I wanted to be crystal clear. I want to be zoned in on what I was doing to be able to serve because my goal every day is to just touch one person's life. And if I can do that through this uh, interview, this session, then what a privilege, what a blessing that is. So the first one is move. The second one is share. So I really believe that it is a sign of strength, not a sign of weakness. Put your hand up. You know, I, I regularly speak to a counselor. I regularly speak to coaches, to peers, to, to 
other people that allow me to get the weight of the world off my shoulders sometimes because from an outsider's point of view looking in you think that my life is very very comfortable and very cushy but everybody has those little dark challenges that are hidden in their cupboards that we try not to share with the world and we do our best to try and get through them as effectively as what we can but sometimes we just need to put a hand up and I think that is such a moment of courage to say, you know what, I need you. I need to get this off my chest. I think the first step in, in getting better is by acknowledging where you are. And then the last one is to help. Um, and for me, it's about identifying in your world who you can help that is less fortunate than what you are that may not be able to return the favor. Uh, you know, I, I said to my neighbor the other day, I was like, hey, um, do you need help raking the, the uh, mulch? My, my wife is, I don't know what she was doing, swimming, I don't know. Um, my daughter was asleep and my son was at preschool, uh, daycare. So, and I had nothing on, I had like four hours to kill. And I was like, do you want a hand moving the mulch? He's like, man, I don't, I'm fine. Uh, it's all good. And I was like, no, no, let me help you. I'll, I'll reword it. And he says, why do you want to help? Like you got stuff to do at your house. I was like, you know what, it's funny. I can go out and weed my garden and I'll just weed my garden. But if I go and help my neighbor weed his garden, I feel good about myself because it releases dopamine and makes us feel good about ourselves. It increases our self-worth, our self-value. Mm -hmm. um, so by helping somebody else, it does exactly that. So when you can just strategically think, all right, I'm in darkness. I need to move. I need to share. I need to help. Who can I help? That's going to serve you really well. And the other one is the three P's. And that is we need to be patient. We need to be persistent and we need to have perspective. I think when we have those three, they're the three values that I try and inject into my son and my daughter. Not so much my daughter because she's she just screams all day, every day because she just <laughs> teeth are coming through. And, you know, I don't have boobs. So I I, can't, I just give her cuddles as much as I can. And, and she's just incredible. But um, patience, persistence and perspective. If we can reflect on those three P's as well, uh, I think that'll serve us greatly through our challenges. Beautiful. Now, uh, one quick question I have uh, for you that's, that I'm dealing with at the moment is work-life balance achievable when you're chasing big goals? I don't think so. Mm. As hard as that is to say, I don't think work-life balance is achievable, but I believe that when you prioritize your life, before your work, you will allow yourself to create your dream. So it's a slight little play on words, but if you just burn the candle at both ends, you're never going to amount to anything. You know, that's why some countries don't answer the phone between 12 and two because their staff need to reboot, re-energize. They meditate. I have a client, I have a company that I work with at 10.15 to 11 and from 2.30 to 3.15 on a Monday, they dial in and we meditate together for 45 minutes. So we get like 50 or 60 in the morning and 50 or 60 in the afternoon. It gives them the opportunity wow. to reboot like that. That stuff is powerful. That stuff allows us to get the balance right. But more importantly, you know, I love that. I shared it with a buddy last night. Um, if it's important, you'll find a way. If not, you'll find an excuse. And when our excuses get in the road of our personal health and mental state of mind, then our wealth, our dreams, we may as well not even have them. You know, because I think 
you know, I, again, I, I recall another saying, but it is um, so often we sacrifice our health to create wealth. And then in turn, we have to sacrifice our wealth to protect and save our health. So we need to get the balance as best as we can. But I think when we begin to prioritize what's truly important, you know, if you know that you're going to be unwell and, you know, you've got an end date, then all of a sudden the dream no longer is the key to our existence. And, you know, I love that. I love that, that uh, when you're healthy, you've got hundreds of dreams and goals. When you're unhealthy, you just have one. And that is obviously to be healthy. So don't wait until you're unhealthy to have the dream of being healthy. You know, gratitude. When I'm sick, I'm grateful that I'm one step closer to getting better. Mm. And when I'm better, I'm so grateful that I'm better. Hopefully that answers your question. Definitely. Definitely. Michael, I've got one last one. Well, sorry, one last question for you, if you don't mind. Why? If you if you close your eyes now and visualize your dreams over the next ten years and what life looks like for you over a ten year period, what's your proudest moment that's happened or you've achieved over that ten years? So if I visualize the next ten years of my life, yep. You want to know what it is going to be in those 10 years that I'm going to be most proud of. Yeah. Perfect. Um, That I'm retired and only doing things to serve others, not to create materialistic wealth. I'm proud of the fact that that I can be the dad to my kids that my dad never was for me. And I can be the husband to my wife that my dad couldn't be for my mum. I think that that is, I think that's the three things that really bring me the greatest joy. You know, I, I was taught beautifully as a boy from my dad how not to be a man. He taught me beautifully how not to be a husband and how not to be a father. And I'm so proud of the lessons because I will implement those lessons daily to ensure that my family never experienced what we experienced as a kid. And, uh, you know, I'm so proud that my kids will never feel the same pain as I did and I'm so proud that my wife will never feel the same pain as my mum did and that brings so much comfort and so much peace and so much joy into my heart that I will I will be such a better man because of the pain of my past and I think that is that is a really special gift to uh to leave on this planet it's it's quite funny how you well it's not funny but it's it's quite exposing how people that have the hardest lives end up living the best lives later on down the track if they know how to combat that um and you certainly have shown people how to uh do you think that's one contributing reason why you're giving so much in haiti 
and why you've why you've started this orphanage and the school and everything that you're doing? Yeah, I think so. I think <clears throat> I think that the challenges that we experience as as young children um, and young adults um, definitely mold us and shape us into who we become later in life. And you know, I I. I think that when we really understand the concept of doing something for somebody else for no other reason, but for doing something for somebody else, you know, it's such a, a hard thing to gain. Like even little things like we, we go to a friend's house the other day, my wife was flat stick busy, insanely busy um, with the kids. So I, I baked, I don't know, I'm not much of a baker. I, I, I cook a lot. I like to cook meals, but I'm not like a, a cake maker or something. But anyway, I got onto the thermo mix and found a recipe and made this banana cake and and we went over there and we had a beautiful banana cake and they said to me, oh Jesus, banana cake's so nice and I just said, oh my wife is amazing in the kitchen. Didn't lie, didn't say that my wife cooked it. I just said my wife's amazing in the kitchen <laughs> and um, and then like four days later, the woman rang my wife and asked her for the recipe of the banana cake that she made that she didn't make for them to cook at their house and Mel's like why did you tell them that you made? And I was like, no, no, I, I didn't lie. I just told them that you're amazing in the kitchen, but it's just a very small example. And I hope that makes sense to people, but it's just like when you just give credit to other people and you help other people and you serve other people and you want to inspire other people and you just want to allow other people to lead a better life than what they were before you entered it into their lives. Then I think it's such a really beautiful place to live. And, you know, ultimately when your time's up, you've, You've been able to, you know, that cliche statement of making the world a better place and leaving it better than what you found it. Beautiful. Mate, I've got one last uh, question before you head off. Um, what are some of the, obviously you're working with some very, very high-end clientele, some corporate owners, CEOs and whatnot. What are the biggest pitfalls you've seen business owners and people in the corporate world make on their way up? Stepping on people on the way up. Uh, that's been huge because they're still going to be there on your way back down. Um, I think, I think regardless, like you could go through a list of 10, 10 pages, however many, but the greatest thing that I see is um, not prioritizing their family. Like that is so many people are wealthy and alone and that saddens me greatly. You know, I, I work with a guy who, you know, he gets up at five, he's got an amazing routine, but he gets up at five o'clock in the morning, he works all day, gets home at eight o'clock at night. He's got three kids, he's married, and uh, he spends maybe two hours on a Saturday afternoon with them. And then he preps for work on Sunday and he's missing, he's missing their lives. And, you know, there's plenty of pictures that I put up on social media around that sort of stuff, but you know, my, my son, my daughter, they will never see me on the phone. That's my goal. They will never see me text. They will never see me send an email. Uh, they might see me whilst I'm talking on the phone, but I'm not looking at the phone because they are my number one priority. I never want them to realize, I never want them to believe that what I'm holding in my hand is more important than they are. And that's why I love that, that picture online on one of my Instagram posts was there's a, there's a man and he's just probably sending an email and his son's just looking at him saying, you know, I wish I was my daddy's phone. I would finally get some attention. You know, I think that is, 
that's the key you know that there's another video online i'll quickly say share the story but there's another video online of me speaking and i think i had like 10 million views or something it went insane and it's about a man who works from home and he's his son says, can we play catch? And the dad says, I'm busy. The next day, can we play catch? Sorry, I'm busy. Third day in a row, a little boy walks in and says, hey, daddy, um, can you tell me how much money you earn an hour? Daddy says, that's a rude question, son, but I earn 50 bucks an hour. Let's put a roof over your head and food in your tummy, so get out of my office. And a week, a month, two months goes by before the little boy knocks on daddy's door and he says, hey, daddy. Daddy says, yes, son. He says, daddy. Over the last two months, I've been mowing lawns. I've been pruning trees. I've done every single chore that my mum has asked of me. And I've been able to raise $25. Um, Daddy, I was wondering if I'd give you this $25. And uh, could I please just have half an hour of your time? You know, I, uh, I reflect back on when my little boy was unwell. And I give away everything I had to have a healthy little boy knock on my door. So I think that. We must not wait until it's too late before we lose the things that mean so much to us. And, um, you know, that that is, I think, the greatest thing that we must do, but the most common thing that we don't do as we focus on our internal priority of being the best we can be. Well, well thank you, Michael, for putting life in perspective for all of us. Michael, what's the last thing you would say looking back at your younger self? Michael, who's say seven to nine years old, what last quote or piece of advice would you share to him? Yeah, probably a couple of things because you see that I like to talk. Um, I think, I think firstly, it'd be just like have faith in the process, like just have faith that things are going to work out. Believe, believe that everything's going to be okay. You know, my, I, I wrote my uh, book, Everything Will Be Okay. And that is basically the words that my mum shared with me when I was told I'd never go to school, play sport. Son, doctors told me everything was going to be okay. When I was diagnosed, I went to have my heart attack at 12, never play sport again. Everything will be okay, son. When I got diagnosed in 2010 um, with, you know, the Bell's palsy and all that, mum said everything will be okay. In 2016, when I got sick, um, my mum said, what did the doctors say? I finally got a chance to return the favour. And I, I told her that everything was going to be okay. And then when our little boy was was uh, was very unwell and uh, he had sepsis and we had to get flown back to Sydney. And uh, my wife said, what did the doctors say? I said, everything was going to be okay. It's amazing when you can instill a inner belief that everything will be okay, how much more productive and how much more of an abundant life that you can lead. The second thing that I would probably share with them, um, my younger self, is the whole cards analogy. You know, someone said to me one day, you've been dealt with some really crappy cards. And I remember saying to them, whilst everyone being dealt cards, that means I'm still in the game. And I think we should stop spending our lives comparing our cards to other people, but rather be grateful that we still have cards, be grateful that we're still in the game and play those cards as effectively as what we can. So my advice to my younger self would be to simply play the cards that you have been dealt as effectively as what you can because everything will be okay. Outstanding. Thank you so much, mate. Brilliant. My pleasure, guys. Thanks so much for having me on. Hopefully, um, Ooh, I'm going to have to shake the body out. <laughs>